This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have NBC's War Telescope, as it aired on July 31st, 1943. The series was broadcast from London and offered weekly updates on the war, as well as looking at what could be coming in the weeks and months ahead. It was hosted by war correspondent Morgan Beatty. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. So thanks for joining us for today's episode, and we hope you enjoy this latest entry of the World War II Radio Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saturday at this same time, the National Broadcasting Company presents Morgan Beatty's War Telescope, a review of the war week and a forecast of possible developments to come. Morgan Beatty is NBC's veteran war reporter in the British capital, and so for his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London. This is Morgan Beatty looking at the 204th week of war through the War Telescope. The world has had seven days to absorb the shock of Mussolini's, quote, resignation, unquote. But seven days is hardly enough for an event of that magnitude to sink in. Unfortunately, other crowding events, the question of what Italy's going to do, what Hitler's going to try to do, and what the Allies are doing, are filling the airwaves and the newspaper columns. We haven't had time to focus our attention on the real significance of the end of Mussolini. But the clues are coming now. Last night, the Berlin radio omitted the usual reading of the Goebbels article in Das Reich. You see, for years, the German public has taken its cue from Dr. Goebbels, the Hitler propaganda minister. He writes a piece for his newspaper, and the Berlin radio religiously picks it up word for word, comma for comma, and allows the German public to listen to the wheels go round in the mind of the great doctor. But this week, there was no advice from Goebbels. The wheels went round, but they weren't held up to the microphone in Germany for the moment. The reason for this interruption of German propaganda is quite clear. It's a part of the Mussolini shock. For 20 years, the man Mussolini has worked night and day to make himself a legendary figure in Italy. His word was law, and the law was fascism. Now, suddenly, the great legend is gone. It's perfectly obvious to Dr. Goebbels, of course, that both Mussolini and Hitler have put their faith in a doctrine that never held water and never will. Namely, if you repeat a story long enough, and if you educate people to believe that story enough, they will believe it. These men had taken the trouble, of course, to heed an Illinois storekeeper named Abraham Lincoln. They would have known that you can't fool all the people all the time. But, of course, they didn't pay any attention to Lincoln. And so they've suffered a, suffered a great shock. And they don't quite know what to do to pick up the pieces. In contrast, 
Let's note what the poor, helpless democracies have done this week. As we reported to you exclusively earlier in the week, the High Command had framed the terms of capitulation for Italy along with the campaign against Sicily. And Winston Churchill read out those terms the day after Mussolini's fall was revealed. Give us, said the Prime Minister in effect, give us a clear path through your country to get at our number one enemy and we'll be reasonable. At the same time, the Prime Minister and President Roosevelt have said we'll make no compromise with fascism. But they did not bar any dealings with reformed fascists, provided we hold the whip hand in those dealings. And that, too, sounds perfectly reasonable. Meanwhile, the Anglo-American generals began to crack down on the last remaining corner of Sicily with their big guns. And the air attack continued in that theater, unabated. And just to be sure that the Germans themselves understood the full significance of the fall of Mussolini, the Anglo-American air fleets, based on Britain, redoubled the attack on Germany this week. Our flying forts and the RAF night bombers unleashed on Western Europe the most ruthless bombing assault in the history of warfare. The Luftwaffe, of course, did its best on the defensive. And the military discipline of that organization still held the controls. But the grip on those controls was weakening. The reason of its weakening is fairly clear. They can't make airplanes and train an air force as fast as we can. And there is an added reason why the Luftwaffe's weakening, along with civilian German morale. It's the men in our air forces and their determination. This afternoon, we have four of those men here in the studio with us. They've just passed through one of the most amazing experiences in this war. They were shot down over German-controlled water. They watched the bombing of Hamburg, the great German naval base. They watched it twice, once in daylight by American flying forts and once by night by the RAF. And still they lived through it all to come back to England. As these boys talk to you and me today, and to each other, I'd like to ask you to listen for clues to very significant facts that the enemy can never face down. And we'll check up on the facts at the end of the broadcast. Lieutenant John P. Keelan of Navasota, Texas, is the pilot, and with him are three of his crew. Lieutenant, all of these men... Well, you folks back home can remember the kids down the street. The boys who passed by on their way to school a few short years ago. These men are those boys grown up. They're typical. <laughs> that is all except Ed Cannon. The boys call him Sunshine. And why Sunshine? Well, can't you see there's plenty of scalp exposed for the sun to shine on? Yes. Ed's a little premature with that bald spot of his. Makes him look a little older than the rest of you. Otherwise, you are all typical, or were a few short years ago, typical neighborhood boys. But, Lieutenant, what happened out there? Well, on the field raid last Sunday, we went in and out okay. Except for a little flak. Yeah, a piece of flak came in behind me, and I saved it for a souvenir. But it didn't take you long to forget that flak when we went into the dive. You were moving faster than the draft board when I enlisted. Wait a minute. You're getting ahead of the story. Lieutenant, won't you pick it up back there away? Well, we thought we'd shaken the fighters and the show was about over because we were out over the North Sea, homebound. But three stray fuck wolves made a quick pass at our formation. They all lined up and came in with two, one right after the other. Everybody in the formation opened up on them, but they winged us. You mean literally? Yes, a cannon shell went in our right wing. And smoke started pouring out. The wind caught a fire. We went into a dive. I gave orders to prepare for ditching. That's Air Force lingo for crash landing on the water, of course. All of us knew the wing was gone, and we were going to have to get out. And you were 30 miles from Germany? Yes. I didn't want the boys to jump because I thought, well, I was afraid I'd, they'd never be found, and I hoped I could bring the ship out of the dive. 
We all came forward to the radio compartment, and we figured the lieutenant was right. The dive was not too steep. And sure enough, he pulled it out, and we hit the water just as sweet as we would have come down on concrete. But you forgot to say, Sergeant, that the way is not the ball turret clear through the ship and the fuselage crack. That's right, but we still had about 10 seconds to get out. I think you had 15 seconds, Ed. Anyway, we pulled the dinghy releases, and, and three of us got out into the dinghy without getting wet. In 15 seconds. Man, that's speed. Well, you can make pretty fast time when you have to. Anyway, there we were, crowded into the rubber boats, and our ship had disappeared under the waves. Now, now this was about 6 o'clock last Sunday night. Yes, and the first thing we did was to tie the dinghies together and start worrying. We knew the formation to report our position. They must have seen us ditch, but we were mighty close to Germany. And we didn't want the enemy to pick us up. The wind was cold, too. So we rigged the tent over the dinghies. We made it out of parachutes and then waited. Then we heard the hum of those lanks going in to hunt Hamburg. You mean the big night raid on Hamburg of last Sunday night, of course. Then you gentlemen must have seen that raid. Yes, sir. We had a grandstand seat for that show. It was a great thrill anyway. We saw the flak going up and heard the explosions of those blockbusters. We never thought we'd be able to watch one of our own bombing operations, but there was another surprise in store for us. We heard the dogfights with our forts when they came over the next day on the Hamburg Daylight Raid. But they were out of sight by land. And we were watching for some of the RAF Air Sea Rescue planes. We thought they ought to be coming along. And sure enough, about one o'clock Monday, a big lang came over and spotted us. And from then on, there were anywhere from four to eight rescue planes around. One of them dropped a power launch by parachute, and it was mighty good to see our forts join the British to hold off German attacks. We pried off the waterproof cover to get the directions for running the power launch. And our navigator figured the course to steer. He's Bill Gorwick of New York, and he hit it right on the nose. One of the rescue planes signaled exactly the same course to England, and we got out of German waters as fast as we could. Then as the planes gave out of gas and night came on, they dropped out of sight. The next morning, about 10, a Danish fishing boat picked us up, launch and all. They offered to get us closer to England. But the Air Sea Rescue Service wasn't taking any chances. They sent out RAF power launches. Be sure that the Danes wouldn't take you when the British power launches that way this week. I want to tell you, the Air Sea Rescue Service and the Royal Navy will go to any length to get us out of the drink. And they don't ask you whether you're British, American, French, Norwegian, or even German. They come right out after you, and they keep coming until they know you're either safe or gone. Well, I wonder, uh, wonder what happened to those Danes. Well, when we left them, they said they'd see us again. They didn't like the Germans a bit, and I found out yesterday that they followed us in and tied up in a British port. They're going to join the Free Danish Air Force here in Britain. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I'll bet you folks thought Tom Swift had some adventures in his day. They were pretty tame, I'd say, compared to the adventures. But I wonder if you also picked up the clues, the very significant clues, as we went along. The portents of future events. You remember way back there several minutes ago, Sergeant Cornick referred to his draft board. Well, all of the were either enlisted men, enlisted just before they drafted, or they were actually drafted. Sergeant Cornick told me an hour or two ago, just before the draw broadcast, they had a little understanding with a fellow named Uncle Sam. The sergeant says it was a yes, sir, and a no, sir, understanding. Anyway, not a single one of these men, including, as a matter of fact, Lieutenant Keelan, 
has been a professional soldier for more than two years of his life. They all came into the Army about 1941, I believe. Some of them later. As a matter of fact, Lieutenant Keelan in 1942. And although the lieutenant dabbled in a little ROTC work in Texas, the military is not his line. And the parents of all of these men weren't too happy about their boys going into the air service. But, as I understand it, all of these parents back there at home in various parts of the country are reconciled to the service now, and they understand. In other words, it didn't take democratic America 20 years to turn out skilled aviators and soldiers. And I wonder if you noticed that professional navigation on the part of this man, Bill Grulick of New York City. He's not here with us today, but if you'll remember, the navigator hit the course for England from one of those rubber dinghies right on the nose. So in that service, they don't ask you what's under German guns for all of the men in all of the Allied services, 365 days a year. As a matter of fact, we tried to get some of these royal... They told us they'd be glad to come and to talk to you people, only they're just too busy this week. All of these young men in the Allied countries came up in nations that hate war. These American flyers in the studio, for instance, went to school out in Texas, Colorado, up in Minnesota, and in Pennsylvania, They've been taught that war is not the way to solve the problems of mankind. They've been taught it all of their school lives. Now, isn't it strange? Mussolini has been teaching exactly the op opposite doctrine to the children of Italy for 20 years. Remember the youths of fascism and so forth? His flyers, his soldiers, and Hitler's have been taught that might is right. These American boys you've heard today were taught that might should never be used except as a last resort. And so now we see what's worrying Dr. Goebbels, why he's flustered, why he didn't go on the air with his piece in the paper last night. He thought, as Mussolini has thought, that a generation taught to fight would be an invincible generation. He thought that the democracies had so far forgotten the fundamental defensive instincts that they couldn't defend themselves against aggressors. Dr. Goebbels is paying dearly for his mistake and paying dearly for it right these minutes. These men, and millions of men just like them, can think for themselves. Oh, it might well be that they argue once in a while about what shade, just what shade is playing. And these young men are determined to report on the war as observer in the British capital. Mr. Beatty is presented every Saturday at this same time. So be sure to tune in again one week from today. This is the National Broadcasting Company.